1895, Irish newspapers reported that a young woman in the town of Conmull had mysteriously disappeared and family and friends had blamed the disappearance on the good people. The newspaper, Nationalist and Tipperary Advertiser, said, quote, Her friends who were present assert that she had been taken away on a white horse before their eyes, and that she told them when leaving that on Sunday night, they would, if they would meet her at a fort on Killingrad Hill, there they could, if they had courage, rescue her. Accordingly, they assembled at the appointed time and place to fight the fairies, but needless to say, no white horse appeared. When this young woman turned up dead and badly burned, her husband insisted that, no, they had only discovered a changeling, and that his real wife would turn up soon enough. The resulting court case made international headlines. No one but Bridget Cleary's immediate friends and family seemed to seriously contemplate the possibility that she had been taken away by fairies and replaced by a changeling. And so this story stirred talk all around the United Kingdom by newspaper columnists, learned professors, scholars, and pundits of the era, all asking, is Ireland a primitive and superstitious place? But what's most interesting is that in asking this question, are the Irish primitive, the people of the United Kingdom overlooked their own superstitions? At the time, the Victorians were extraordinarily interested in mediums and seances and parapsychical research. The Anglican Church was also undergoing a kind of, kind of revival across the pond. The Americans were struggling with the revival of the Indian ghost dances. As Dr. Jason Josephus Storm reports in his book, The Myth of Disenchantment, the focus of today's episode, there is a history in Europe and the United States of overlooking our own interests in enchantment, spirits, supernatural, and paranormal, and projecting our sense that What's superstitious, what's weird, what's different, always belongs to a primitive group of people, be they the Irish, who were looked down upon by Englanders, or people from the past, Native Americans, ancient Europeans, pagan groups. But as Dr. Storm reports in his book, it's just not true that belief in enchantment belongs to, to primitive peoples. We all believe in enchantment. It's actually a common and very normal part of European, American, and all industrialized societies. So today on the Spectral Skull Session, we'll be asking, where did this myth come from? Where did we get the idea that only primitive peoples believe in the weird? Stay tuned. This is an episode that will shatter your preconceptions about the myth of progress. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses 
and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom, you're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine but then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom. Your hands smell like herb. You've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door. You're not vibing. You got to light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Tree sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. There's the Metatron's Cube themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box in every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website happytreesupplies.com, but now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. Welcome back. The focus of today's episode is a, a book, as I already said in the introduction, by Dr. Joseph, Josephine Storm. He's a professor of religion at Williams College, and he wrote this book, The Myth of Disenchantment. You might think that the history of the West has been a history of moving from period of superstition, where people believe in strange things, ghosts, demons, gods, the evil eye, the jinn, banshees, werewolves, vampires, hexes, curses, astrology, talismans, all sorts of magic, 
um, we've progressed then to an era where we don't believe in any of that. We all believe the world is governed mathematically by laws, that causation, material causation, explains everything that happens in our universe. There's no more room for anything strange and unexplained. But as Dr. Storm argues in his book, actually that's not true. We still believe in weird things. People in what you might call the West, Europe, United States, industrialized parts of the planet, have always believed in weird things. It's actually doesn't seem to be going away at all. It's possibly increasing at the moment. And the very story that we were moving from superstition to enlightenment is itself a myth. It's a story with no real basis in fact. It seems to say more about the people who tell it than it says about anything in the real world. So let's get started. I'm going to quickly review the main theses that I found in this book, and then I'm going to explain the arguments and evidence that Dr. Storm gives us for these theses. Let me first say, uh, in reading this book, it's an academic piece of work put out by the University of Chicago Press. I recommend you pick the book up for yourself. It's very dense, and, and there's a lot of information uh, in it about the history of sort of Western, Western thought. You might just say European thought. And a lot of it is couched in the special language of academics. And so I'm doing some pretty heavy deciphering, I'd say, or you might call this a creative interpretation instead of a uh, straight-up like book report, because I extracted about four main points that I think are really relevant to our audience about enchantment. And I think that there's actually a lot more going on in the book that we're not going to have time to talk about. But here's the main ideas that I picked up on. Um, first one, belief in paranormal is normal. It's not unusual to believe in strange things. It's really quite common throughout Europe, the United States, and Japan. That's the first one. Second, some of the biggest historical advocates of enlightenment, so-called, and the march of the secularizing sciences were actually really interested in spiritual knowledge, in magic, in occult rituals. People like Newton, Bacon, Descartes were, if not actively practicing magic themselves, were in some ways steeped in magical traditions, and it influenced the way they thought. Uh, in other cases, people like Freud started out not steeped in those traditions, but then they kind of bent back. They got interested in them later in their career. So the third point, the myth of a march from darkness and superstition to science and rationality, this myth of disenchantment, is just a retelling of a central myth from European folklore. And it's a myth about uh, the loss of magic. Apparently that people in Ireland have been telling a version of this myth long before the scholars and scientist types started to tell it. And Christians have been telling a version of this myth as well. So we'll get into that. It's an old myth that's just come back in a new form. They've sort of built an atheistic version of it now. And finally, attempts to promote disenchantment, or at least to spread the myth of disenchantment. So attempts by scholars to 
reinforce this idea that, yes, European world is progressing from superstition to rationality, these attempts have tended to generate the opposite. That, that is, that they actually cause pro-enchantment movements. So that's the, those are the main points that we're going to be getting at today in this review. Let's start off with the first point. Belief in the paranormal is normal. Actually, let's hold up one second. Let's talk about what we mean by enchantment and disenchantment really fast. Uh, when I read this book, I got the impression that enchantment was... This is really tough, actually. Um, enchantment seems to be belief in magic, miracles, the things that we call the paranormal, which would be like UFOs, psychic powers like clairvoyance, ESP, telepathy, telekinesis, and um, astrology, also alchemy. It seems like there's quite an eclectic list of things, according to Dr. Storm, that count as enchantment. And I actually contacted him about this. I said, I'm a little concerned that I'm having trouble identifying what enchantment is for you. And he told me, well, look, every chapter of the book is supposed to be me talking about a theorist of disenchantment. And I use that theorist model of what enchantment is to then show that that person, by his own standards, ends up a believer in enchantment. So an example that he gave me was, he's got a whole chapter, a section of the book on Freud, and Freud believed that, you know, enchantment was anything that involved believing in the uh, omnipotence of thought. So Freud thought, you know, you're a superstitious person if you think that your thoughts alone can affect reality. But then later in his life, Freud gets into telepathy and um, even kind of skirts, flirts with... Um, like the ability to see the future in your dreams, that kind of thing. And in doing that, Freud is, although we think of him as, you know, the kind of person pushing this idea that it's time to be rational and we're moving away from irrationality towards rationality, Freud ends up bringing in some things that he would define as irrational into his own theorizing. Uh, so that's what Dr. Storm said about his book, but he's got a whole chapter. Chapter one is just about, hey, paranormal beliefs are normal and widespread. And he doesn't define paranormal strictly. So I see enchantment, as he's using it, as just, like I said earlier, belief in magic, miracles, what we think of as the paranormal. Let's just say that because it seems to work for me. Um, it seems in all the cases that he gives in this book. Okay, and then, so what is the myth of disenchantment? That's just that myth sorry, the myth of disenchantment is a story that says initially we all believed in weird things like miracles, magic, and paranormal, but we're moving away from that through education, through science. We're becoming a society where people don't believe in any of those things. So that's the myth of disenchantment. And um, it's Dr. Storm who's the one arguing, well, it's a myth, right? It's not just a story. It's not a true story about human history. It's a false story about human history. Um, or to be a little bit fair, it's not necessarily a false story, but it's a myth. It's a story that communicates more about the people who tell it than it does about what we might call objective reality. If there is such a thing. And I do think there is such a thing. Okay, so chapter one is kind of just an introduction to say, hey, paranormal is normal. And Dr. Storm first uses Japan as an example. Now, you might think that Japan is an industrialized nation. They're very technologically advanced. But... Um, you know, it turns out that they're really into weird things. They're really into things that we would call magic, 
or the paranormal um, and also old gods. So first example I thought was really interesting was we're told that there's a town, Kotohira, on the island of Shikoku. And there they have a plaque in honor of Japan's first astronaut, Akiyama Toyohiro. And that plaque thanks the god of sailors, Kompira, for Akiyama's safe voyage through space. So you have a very sci-fi kind of invocation of the gods, almost Battlestar Galactica moment happening in this small town in Japan. But we're told by Dr. Storm, Japan is full of things like this. It's a land of flash drives that double as magical charms, funeral rituals for old photographs, iPhone apps for exorcisms, and Buddhist stupas dedicated to Thomas Edison and Heinrich Hertz, labeling them the divine patriarchs of electricity and electromagnetic waves. So in Japan, we see proof that being industrialized does not mean being disenchanted. Belief in the paranormal and respect for the old gods persists even in this most advanced land known as Japan. But interesting thing Dr. Storm says in the book that he actually wanted to focus more on Japan and he was afraid to do so because of the degree to which Americans and Europeans uh, exoticized the Japanese. He found that when he talked to people about how he was using Japan to show that um, disenchantment is a myth, people were like, oh yeah, well, Japan's, you know, exotic oriental place. You know, if they didn't, they may not, maybe they didn't say those words exactly, but they expressed this idea that Japan was somehow special and not a good example of a, a Western place. So he also did sections of this chapter on America and Europe. Let's just talk about America. So we all know about a 2005 Gallup telephone survey of 1,000 Americans, which found that a third of all Americans believe in ghosts. But actually, subsequent surveys have shown even more belief in the supernatural. A 2015 survey found 50% of Americans agree with psychic powers, precognition, and telepathy, and 43% believe in ghosts. Some reports that according to the Gallup poll, 73% of people believe in some kind of paranormality. And this is consistent with polls going back into the 1990s. 2007 survey found 55% of Americans have experienced contact with a guardian angel. One book, Paranormal America, published in 2010, found, quote, Statistically, those who report a paranormal belief are not the oddballs. It is those who have no beliefs that are in the significant minority. Exactly which paranormal beliefs a person finds convincing varies, but whether it is UFOs and ghosts or astrology and telekinesis, most of us believe in more than one. If we further consider strong beliefs in active supernatural entities and intense religious experiences, the numbers are even larger. And this is something that Dr. Storm emphasizes in his book. Uh, people don't agree on which paranormal re things are real. He says different metaphysical communities are often skeptical of one another. So people who practice magic will often look down on spiritualists, while professed psychics will look down on those who practice magical rituals. Psychics will often say, well, there's no 
there's nothing ritualistic that you need to do because your ability to, say, communicate with the dead is just a natural power of your mind. It's not something that involves any kind of hocus pocus. I myself have long noticed that UFO people and ghost people seem to be in different camps. I am somebody who uh, started out more of a UFO guy, but now I'm really open to everything. Well, I guess I'm an exception. I'm a host of a paranormal podcast show. So, Oh, and one of the most intense divides in the paranormal belief world has to do apparently with Christianity. So many people who reject a category of paranormal belief do so from their Christianity. So it turns out there's some Protestant groups that believe that there's no such thing as ghosts because uh, apparently ghostly activity is always demonic. And so they also reject the existence of like reincarnation. They'll also reject psychic powers. And they'll say, no, if, if you appear to have psychic powers, it's just that you're being messed with by a demon. So maybe a demon plays along with you. Maybe you don't even know it yourself if you're, you think you're psychic and you think you have these powers, but really it's a, another agency behind the scenes is pulling the strings and just leading you to believe in these things because it wants to mess with you. Well, and according to the Protestants, it ultimately wants you to stop believing in God and, and believe in some other thing and thus you'll go to hell. So that's their, their belief. And it's interesting then to think though, so that's not a rejection of the paranormal from a place of rationality, at least as the way like skeptics movement would call it. Um, it's not rejection of the paranormal from an atheistic materialist standpoint, right? It's rejection of one category of the paranormal because you believe in another category of the paranormal. And so even when there's a category that's not fully believed in by Americans, say like, you know, only 43% of people believe in ghosts, well, of the what would it be, 57% who said, no, I don't believe in ghosts, a good chunk of them believe in demons. The point being here that we all tend to have some weird beliefs. We just disagree about how exactly to understand the weird. Dr. Storm also found that belief in the occult, supernatural, and paranormal is fairly bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans equally believe in these things, although they may disagree about which things they believe in. I think that would be because Republicans tend to have more um, Pentecostal, uh, sorry, evangelical Christians in their camp. And so evangelical Christians, as I said, tend to disbelieve in certain classes of the paranormal on the grounds that they're demonic. But um, no, he says that, well, then, then people who are on the left, liberals make up for it. They tend to have more of the new age uh, hippie type beliefs. So they're more into psychic powers and crystals and channeling and those kinds of things. So it ends up balancing out. So for all the, all of you who, who was hoping, all of you who were hoping that the occult beliefs were the purview of some kind of far right, uh, neo-Nazi fringe, turns out that that's just a Steven Spielberg fantasy, right? From the Indiana Jones films. And uh, you can be, be forgiven for that because there was a whole thing in the 20th century. Uh, a lot of people worked on Nazi occultism. The Nazis, the Nazis uh, were really into the occult, and um, they were steeped in a whole 
tradition uh, started in the 19th century. It was like neo-pagan revival type stuff. It's really interesting. Actually, reading Dr. Storm's book helped me to make more sense of that because he talks about how the Germans in the 19th century, first they got obsessed with this idea that God was dead. They'd actually been obsessed with it for like going back to the 17th century. The Germans had been saying God is dead, God is dead, by which they meant um, the divine and the spiritual and religiosity has lost its power over the communal sphere. And people don't invoke God anymore and God doesn't motivate political decision-making and blah, blah, blah. But they really got into it in the 19th century. And uh, that led them to say, well, we need to invent new gods. We need to get back into spirituality and Christianity doesn't work anymore. So we're going to have to get into something new. And they sort of made up some stuff and called it paganism. But it was really just them making stuff up. And then that snowballed into this kind of underground countercultural movement that blasted right through into the 1940s. Uh, the Nazis picked up and ran with it. They were tapping into that uh, aesthetic milieu and that energy to uh, drive their own uh, agenda, which was obviously demonic. And then when the Christian America picks up on this story after the world after World War II, you know, because the Nazis are literally demonic, and so uh, what do you expect Christian America to say? They say, "Well, sounds like the Nazis were in league with the devil." And that's a, an interesting story. And so you get that story kind of repeated through the 20th century. You get this idea of sort of uh, right-wing occultists who are um, working with demonic powers to, um, you know, advance a demonic agenda. Uh, so that's really interesting, but I'm getting a little bit off topic here. I'm going to get back to the main idea. Paranormal belief is bipartisan. And another way to prove that thesis, Dr. Storm says, especially if you look at very intense occultists, so sort of occult intellectuals, people like Aleister Crowley, people like Madame Blavatsky, um, and other people in the, the 20th century who would be an American example. Oh, the writer and occultist William Burroughs, and anyone we've covered on the show like uh, Robert Anton Wilson, some of any of the, um, you know, J uh, Timothy Leary was into the occult. Anyway, these people are all over the political maps. Even the most creative, productive, occult intellectuals, you'll find them, they'll be far right, they'll be far left, they'll be middle of the road politically. And he says it's most obvious if you go back in history and you look at like the theosophists who were part of this German movement that I was talking about, this neo-pagan kind of thing from the 19th century. He says these theosophists, they were divided into pro-colonial and anti-colonial camps pretty evenly. So a big historical point of dispute at the time in the 19th century was, is colonialism good or bad? Sounds like a thing for Europeans to be worried about. And they, you know, divided amongst themselves, even though they were extraordinary, unusual people. They still split down the political aisles. So the point here is uh, no one needs to get up on some kind of uh, high chair and feel like they're enlightened and the other side is not. Moving on, in the second chapter, Dr. Storm examines the idea that great minds, who we often associate with secularization and enlightenment and rationality, were often really into magic. He gives some examples of... Uh, 
Giordano Bruno, who was an early astronomer, burned at the stake for saying that mankind was not at the center of the universe. We often think of him as an enlightened man, a little ahead of his time, right? Gets burned at the stake for saying something that's scientific, and now we know it's obvious, but the superstitious people of the time couldn't handle it. Well, Bruno was really into magic. He was into some kind of Christian magic, uh, and he also believed in aliens. Part of the reason why he said we're not at the center of the world is because he thought that there were many, many aliens out there. And, you know, belief in aliens is surely a paranormal belief. Francis Bacon is probably the strongest example. We think of Bacon as this early skeptic type character because he wrote books about how superstition was bad and he labeled new kinds of superstition. He would label them as idols. And uh, he's famous for the quote, knowledge is power. So he's this, uh, this uh, polemicist who's writing about the Enlightenment. But apparently Bacon believed in natural magic. He just believed that we needed to get the demons out of magic. So when you do magic and you think you're talking to spirits, you're doing demonic magic. That's bad. But he thought there's this natural kind of magic where you're not invoking demons. You just you do certain rituals and you get certain results and you can study it. Bacon was not so concerned with magicians and their practices per se. He just thought they should be public about it. He said, you should use scientific methods when you explore the magical realm. And the core scientific method that I want the, mag the magicians to pick up on is to share your methods. Make them publicly scru scrutizable. scrutizable. Make them open to public scrutiny. And of course, Isaac Newton, many of you know of him as the man who discovered gravity. Um, a little more to say about that. He's the man who formulated universal laws that unified gravitational effects here on the Earth with the movement of the stars and planets in the sky. And so he's a person who brought the world under a mathematical description. He was able to create a single unified mathematical model to describe the motion of objects on the earth and in the sky. So he's seen as someone who advances this materialist clockwork view of the universe. But Storm reminds us, at the time, people were freaked out by Newton's theory. They said, hey, you're introducing occult forces into science because Newton believed in gravity and gravity is action at a distance. And one of the rival theories at the time articulated by Rene Descartes was that all the motion in the heavens is caused by pushing and pulling. So Descartes literally thought the whole solar system, really the whole universe, is in a big vortex. It's a big fluid vortex and that's why everything moves in a circle because we're all swirling around. And Descartes could not handle the idea of action at a distance, that the thing could pull or push on another thing without somehow contacting with that other thing. So Newton's theory of gravity freaked people out. Even freakier, Newton was more interested in alchemy and biblical Kabbalah than he was in his own theory of gravity. So Newton even uh, did some work on predicting the end of the world or sort of work on showing that other people had failed to correctly predict the end of the world. And uh, he, he reconstructed a model of the Temple of Solomon based on a, uh, his sort of like reading between the lines in the Bible. 
Newton was really into this stuff. Um, also alchemy, he drank a bunch of mercury, believing it would make him immortal, and it just made him temporarily insane. Now I want to take a step back here and say a recurring theme in this book that I found very interesting. The problem that Enlightenment figures have with magic isn't magic per se. They always want to purge something from magic, but they want to keep the practice. And what they seem to be doing is they have a notion of what science is. And then they say, well, magic is good. It just needs to be scientized. And so they seem to want to keep these occult rituals around. They just don't want anyone to think that they're talking to spirits or they're doing anything demonic. So an, an example he gives is, uh, uh, I already gave one, but then another one was from a section in chapter two on the first encyclopedia that was ever written. So the encyclopedia was a big enlightenment project. We're going to codify all the knowledge there is to have. We're going to make it available to people. It's going to help undermine superstition and help people become enlightened. But um, here's the thing about the first French encyclopedias. They have entries in them that are either ambivalent about magic or in some cases, endorse magic. So the original 1751 encyclopedia entry on magic describes three kinds. There's divine magic, which is caused by charismatic gifts from God. It seems to be a reference to miracles, like biblical miracles. Then there's supernatural magic, which it says is caused by the illusory power of demons. Lastly, there is natural magic, which it describes as the exhaustive study of nature, the wonderful secrets discovered therein. And Dr. Storm says, you can't be confused about what they mean by magic here. The term natural magic was widely used by the French at the time to refer to popular spell books. These spell books included uh, one very popular text, The Marvelous Secrets of Natural Magic and the Kabbalah of Lesser Albert. This text contained love charms, and instructions for making protective talismans, including how to turn yourself invisible using the hand of a hanged criminal. In my personal correspondence with him, Dr. Storm emphasized his view. I think I didn't pick up on this from the book, is that he saw the people who are attempting to scientize magic, thinks that one of the things they're trying to do is depaganize magic. So they want to take out, they're continuing an old Christian trope, which is we got to reject paganism, right? There shall be no other God, but the one true God. And so um, they don't want anyone to think that this practice of magic is a religious practice. That's part of why they want it to be a scientific practice. So they're sort of running an anti-pagan move on the magical tradition. And then that also accords with this. Apparently there's this tradition of Christian magic that, um, hooks up with the Platonists who were kind of pre-Christian, but Plato is often read by um, intellectuals like Augustine as having been uh, kind of sympathetic to Christianity in some ways compatible because he thought there was only one God and has kind of a mystical view about how God is the same as goodness, which the Christians also hold that, well, Christians have a weird mystical view that God is love. Um, and Plato has this mystical view that uh, well, it's not so much that there's that God is goodness, but that the origin of all being is the good. Um, and so you can call that God if you want. Some of the Neoplatonists did. All right. So 
let's move on to the most interesting part of this book, which is the idea that the story, the myth of disenchantment, is just a new retelling of an old European folk tale about losing your mojo, losing your magic. In one form, it's the idea, popular with many Protestant Christians, that there was an era of miracles, and then sometime after cessation of biblical history, so around, I guess, the end of the, the after Jesus dies and the apostles receive, and they receive uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit is pretty much the end. That's the end of the miraculous age. So these people are called cessationists. They think miracles have ceased. But there's another version of this myth that the Irish have been telling. And this is the idea of fairy departure. For over 600 years, the Irish have been telling stories about how the magical people, the we people, have left us behind. For example, here's a quote from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. This is the tale of the wife of Bath. And we believe this was written around 1380, 1400. Here we go. Here's the quote. In the old days of King Arthur, of which that Britons speak in greet honor, all was this land fulfilled of fairy. The elf queen with her jolly company danced full oft in many a green mead. This was the old opinion, as I read. I speak of many hundred years ago, but now can no man see none elves mow. To paraphrase in modern English, in King Arthur's day, people saw fairies, but today we don't see fairies anymore. 200 years later, John Aubrey would write, quote, the divine art of printing and gunpowder have frightened away Robin Goodfellow and the fairies. And Dr. Storm says it might sound like Aubrey is describing um, process of enlightenment in a metaphorical way, right? That printing and gunpowder have, you know, made us enlightened. But actually, he often describes fairy uh, attacks as very real. And so it's suggestive that he means quite literally, you know, the divine arts of the written word and gunpowder have helped repel the fairy people. In 1810, the English engraver Robert Hartley Cromreck, sorry, it's Cromack, asserted that, quote, farewell, O the fairies, end quote, was a well-attested event around 1790, during which thousands of fairies were witnessed entering into a hill, bidding humankind goodbye, and then vanishing. And so I know I said this was an Irish myth, but it does seem like these are English individuals who are repeating it. I think Chaucer's English was an English poet. So I don't know if these guys were getting this myth from the Irish and then repeating it. It kind of sounds like it's their myth. If you repeat somebody else's myth as if it's true, it's kind of your myth. But it seems like these are early intellectuals, European intellectuals doing what European intellectuals do, which is falsely claiming that the magic is all gone because people are still having fairy encounters, as I reported at the beginning of this episode. They're still having fairy encounters well into the 19th century. I think into the 20th century, as we reported on previous episodes of this show. And so they tell the story, somebody's telling the story at least, the fairies have all departed, it happened in the past, now there's no more magic, 
even while there's clearly still magic going on, right? They're still having these fairy problems. And it's perfectly analogous to what the intellectuals do today, saying, well, now we're secularized, or now we're enlightened or rationalized. We don't believe in magic anymore. We don't have any of that stuff. We're a different kind of people. Meanwhile, hello, right under your nose, everywhere you look, there are psychics. There are people practicing astrology. There are people worried about the evil eye. There are people looking up into the sky and seeing UFOs. The magic is everywhere. And it's the only people who can't see it are these academics, these writers and scholarly types who, for some reason, uh, it seems like they're projecting their own feelings. That maybe they went through a period of disenchantment. They said, oh, I'm, you know, they've, they've lost their belief in the magic. And, and so they think that everyone has. But I don't think that's right. And that's what Dr. Storm is saying. And then the last thesis that I told you is a, a major element of this book is this idea that texts and work on the process of disenchantment often powered re-enchantment. And I can give you one big example of this, which was, uh, there was this famous book we've talked about on the show before, The Golden Baugh. The Golden Baugh was written by Fraser in 1890. The Golden Baugh is a great work of comparative religion that had an unusual uh, philosophical agenda. So Fraser, along with the theosophists of the 19th century, believed that there was a, a kind of proto- faith that had been shared by all the Europeans. The Germans often called this the Aryan. So these were the Aryan people who had the, the proto-faith. They were a proto-people who came before other Europeans, right? Other Europeans were the fragmented remnants of the Aryans who had become different. But if you study the different peoples, you know, you might be able to reconstruct by finding their commonalities, you'd be able to reconstruct the old Aryan belief system. So that's what Fraser thought he was doing with the Golden Ba in 1890. And um, so he advances the thesis that Jesus Christ is just uh, the old Aryan god of the woods. He's the wood god. And so Christianity is, in his view, paganism in a Semitic disguise. And then he also, in later editions, advanced the myth of disenchantment, arguing through his book that we've moved, or the Europeans had moved from an era of magic to an era of organized religion, and now is entering an era of science. And Fraser, like those French philosophers, also advocated for a spirit-free theory of ancient magic. He claimed that even before, apparently, this era of superstition, there was some sort of idyllic era when there was unadulterated magic. He thought that primitive shamanic peoples had practiced magic as a kind of folk science rooted in the way the mind perceives the world. And their departure from true magic was the beginning of superstition, which then eventually turned into religion, which is now evolving into science. And so in his view, the world is in some sense coming full circle and the Europeans are returning to their empiricist shamanic roots through the practice of real science, which is ultimately just going back to the old magic. But here's the real twist. Fraser, um, in developing this model of the Ur religion of the Aryans and the, the primitive and then pre-primitive world of shamanic magic, 
he was doing something that today most scholars think is garbage. So we don't think there was a single unified Aryan religion that came before the Europeans fragmented into all the different nationalities and tribes they are today. And we also don't really believe there was a um, shamanic, idyllic era in which people were, you know, didn't believe in gods or spirits, but just did believe in magic. But his book, The Golden Ball, was very influential with one man, Aleister Crowley. Apparently, Aleister Crowley, during a period in his life where he retreated to New Hampshire, I believe this was like the 19, 1919, uh, it was during World War I. Crowley fled from Europe to get away from World War I. He went to New Hampshire and he read The Golden Ball and he meditated on the death of magic and how spirituality was leaving the world. And that's when he decided to consecrate his life to the revival of magic, the revival of occult spirituality. And the audience is probably familiar with Aleister Crowley as someone influential in the Ordo Templi Orientis, a secret society. Uh, he also apparently is credited as influencing the Church of Satan, Wicca, the Chaos Magic Movement, and other neo-pagan organizations. And the point being, uh, Dr. Storm's point, is that Fraser, in writing about history as moving from superstition to enlightenment, he's writing a bunch of nonsense. Um, it's totally false. It's this myth of disenchantment that he's in the grip of. It's probably saying something about him and not saying something about the progress of European society. But then Crowley reads it and thinks, damn it, I'm going to bring back the magic, right? And so Crowley actually gets something done. He actually brings back magic. At least he like provokes uh, a new explosion of interest in magic in Europe and the United States. And he does it responding to something that apparently was, was nonsense, right? Responding to a hysterical fear about the decline of magic. And so this is just the kind of gold you'll find in Dr. Storm's book. It's a book charting European intellectual history, telling over and over through multiple chapters. We get little, um, little vignettes from history of here's a little era when people got really into a version of the myth of disenchantment. And it was totally bogus. There was no disenchantment taking place. They were really obsessed with it. And so, um, yeah, it seems like these guys tell a false story. It generates some bad history. And um, I think the moral of the story here is something that I've been saying on the show a lot. Feel free to think for yourself. Go out and study the world and form your own judgments. You don't have to believe what the intellectual authorities are telling you. Because apparently the history of our intellectual authorities in the West is these guys getting things grossly wrong. And apparently they're telling, they're making myths. Just like we think of the ancient Greeks as having told myths about the gods, and we think of the Irish as having told, the Celts as having told myths about the wee people. We just have new myths today. They're just weird scientific myths. They don't look superficially like the old myths, but it turns out they're kind of a recapitulation of old themes. And so you might also see the academics of today as just sort of new priests taking over certain priestly functions. All right, that's going to be the end of the episode for today. As I said, this book is an incredible book. It's very dense. I don't think I'm doing it justice here because I think that actually Dr. Storm's theses are more nuanced than I'm uh, describing them here. But I've sort of extracted from them some lessons that I think we can take. For the Spectral Skull Session, this is Dane signing off. 
Until next time, stay strange, stay sane.